This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Welcome to today's podcast. The topic today is submassive pulmonary embolism and the role of catheter-directed thrombolysis in its treatment. We're joined by Drs. David Fafaro and Scott Stevens, who are the authors of a review entitled Catheter-Directed Thrombolysis for Submassive Pulmonary Embolism that was recently published in the Annals. Dr. Fafaro is a fellow in pulmonary critical care at New York Presbyterian Hospital at the Columbia University Medical Center in New York, and Dr. Stevens is the director of the oncology bone marrow transplant critical care, and an assistant professor of medicine and oncology at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Dr. Sprafaro and Stevens, welcome, and thank you very much for participating in this podcast. Thank you so much for having us on the show. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Great. So, you know, this is really an interesting and important topic uh, for all of us, and and I've always found that the treatment decisions about massive and submassive pulmonary embolism to be really among the most challenging of my career, in part because of the concern about the serious complications of treatment, in addition to the potentially uh, adverse natural history of PE in general. So uh, to start off, David, why don't you summarize the scope of the problem of uh, venous thromboembolism uh, in this country? Sure. Uh, the data I've seen uh, back from 2006 looks like there's about 200,000, 250,000 to 600,000 uh, VTE a year, venous thromboembolism, kind of split between DVT and PE, a little bit more DVTs. The last I saw from actually the CDC was about 900,000 in the last few years, so even going up a bit. And then they estimate the CDC that 60,000 to 100,000 people die each year of uh, DVT or PE. So it's quite a big problem. So what was the impetus for your review? How did this review come to be? I was uh, a junior resident. I was actually on the MICU uh, down at Hopkins, and uh, Dr. Brower was my attending. And I admitted a patient overnight who had uh, came in with a large pulmonary embolism, uh, was hemodynamically stable, uh, but we ended up getting a urgent echo and did have evidence of RV strain. And we had a PE response team or a PE attack team down there. So I called them and the patient uh, went for catheter-directed thrombolysis. And then the next morning, Dr. Brower uh, was in and I was presenting on rounds and we started talking about evidence for or against doing catheter-directed thrombolysis for this type of patient and kind of came upon some of the review articles we ended up discussing and uh, it went from there. And then Dr. Stevens does a lot of work with PE, so uh, we got him involved and uh, everything just sort of progressed. Terrific. Um, So I think before we get into the sort of the heart of your findings of your review and some of the recommendations and some of the conclusion you reached. I think uh, I think it'd be helpful if we review both the AHA and the ESC pulmonary uh, embolism risk categories, you know, the high risk versus intermediate risk versus low risk. Um, so I think to get us started on, on that, can you uh, go through that for us? Sure. So uh, high risk or massive PE uh, is somebody who comes in with a pulmonary embolism and is hypotensive, generally uh, systolic blood pressure less than 90 uh, or 40 less than their baseline, uh, or they come in with a, a massive PE and they're arresting or they need pressors uh, or CPR right away. Uh, 
anyone who's not a massive PE then falls into either intermediate risk or submassive or low risk. Uh, the intermediate risk or submassive, it doesn't meet evidence for a massive PE, and then has some evidence of RV strain. And this is sort of a broad term. It can be on echo, it can be on CAT scan, biomarkers, looking at troponin or ProBMP, uh, sometimes EKG as well. Um, and any evidence of RV strain uh, and hemodynamic stability with a PE, doesn't matter the size of the clot, would be an intermediate risk or submassive PE. And then anyone who's not in those first two categories is a low risk pulmonary embolism. So perfect. So in terms of submassive PE, what did you learn about the natural history and prognosis of that category as you did your research? So uh, the interesting thing about submassive PE is it's very difficult to prognosticate. Most patients who have a submassive PE, the symptoms resolve uh, on their own over time. Uh, their RV strain and right heart pressures will normalize and they don't have a, a lot of issues, but there can be some sort of severe complications about uh, five to six and a half percent based on uh, some of the trials looking at this will decompensate, either become hypotensive or progressive hypoxia or RV strain. Uh, and then about in the largest meta-analysis looking at this, uh, that was in JAMA for thrombolysis and anticoagulation, about 2.9% with some massive PE treated with anticoagulation ended up dying. So uh, it can have some pretty severe consequences. All right. So let's get into the, to the heart of, of your review and talk a little bit about uh, catheter-directed thrombolysis um, in, in, uh, in particular. So, so Scott, how is, how is CDT performed? So there, there are a number of ways that it can be done. The, um, the simplest way is just to put essentially a pulmonary artery catheter into uh, usually the bilateral pulmonary arteries. And so usually it's two different catheters, and then you can just uh, drift um, thrombolytics through the catheter directly into the artery or into the pulmonary artery. There are other devices which are able to do mechanical disruption, either true mechanical disruption or with ultrasound-assisted thrombolysis where you combine the infusion of thrombolytics with an ultrasound transducer that allegedly helps uh, the lytics penetrate into the clot and disperse the clot. But the most common way and probably the simplest way is simply, as I said, just to have a pulmonary catheter and infuse uh, thrombolytics through it. Is there, is there a preferred thrombolytic agent as far as you could discern from the literature? I don't think so. I think, I mean, I think it very much depends on which is, which in, each individual hospital has on formulary is what is used. Um, Alteplase or uh, recombinant TPA seems to be the most common uh, compared to streptokinase. Um, but uh, it, it will depend on what each hospital has on formulary. Yeah, it seems like the most common one used in the trials was TPA, but I think there was, they all could be used. Uh, again, like Dr. Stevens said, depending on what the hospital uses. Yeah, I think we use predominantly TPA for as our agent here. Uh, I was just curious if that mirrored uh, the experience uh, around the country. So, uh, so Dave, in your review, you summarized the results of, of three prospective clinical trials, the ultimate trial, the Seattle 2 trial, and the perfect trial, as well as several other retrospective series on catheter-directed uh, thrombolysis. So there, clearly there are methodologic differences between the studies, but uh, what were the main conclusions that you were able to draw uh, from these trials about CDT? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the biggest things that come from the trials is that definitely catheter-directed thrombolysis, when it's used, quickly decreases the pulmonary artery pressures, quickly is uh, relieving some RV strain. Uh, it's able to lessen the clot burden and uh, the measures of RV strain correct right after the procedure and even in the days that are just following. Also, it seemed to be relatively safe in most of these uh uh, articles. There was very rare intracranial hemorrhage. I think only one saw reported um, uh, some major bleeding and some minor bleeding events. I will say one of them, the Seattle 2, had a little bit of a higher major bleeding rate, which gave us a little pause when we were reading it, but mostly uh, it was relatively safe. And additionally, the mortality overall uh, in the articles was pretty low uh, with catheter-directed thrombolysis when, uh, for the intermediate risk PEs. Um, but that mortality rate that we saw was about the same as we we see reported for using anticoagulation alone. So it's tough to say if that was any sort of advantage uh, over uh, just using anticoagulation. And then the one other thing is that the few reviews that looked at uh, measures of RV strain over the long term, so maybe after 90 days or even out, uh, out further than that, showed that while the RV strain improved quickly with the catheter-directed thrombolysis, Compared to the group that just got anticoagulation, it was about the same at three months. So whether or not there was any long-term improvement in RV function, um, it looked like there kind of wasn't, or it remains to be seen if there is. Okay. So one of the things I was interested in um, was some of the endpoints, the primary endpoint they used for the trial. So clearly they focused on surrogate measures of RV function, and they chose the RV to LV ratio. So do you get a sense for why that was the primary endpoint as opposed to potentially a clinical endpoint? I think a couple of things. I mean, I think RVLV ratio, definitely there are some data that uh, it can be associated with um, more chance of decompensating with a higher mortality. So, you know, it's a reasonable measure to look at uh, as something that you're improving with your intervention. But I think uh, more than that, too, it's very easily quantifiable. So they can sort of measure it right before and right after. And you can see that you've had um, some sort of impact on it. And it doesn't kind of require a long term follow up. I I get a sense that that's why it's used as the most primary endpoint instead of something that we may be more clinically interested in, like all-cause mortality at 30 or 90 days, um, which takes a little bit more measure. I don't know, uh, Scott, if you think something else as well. No, I think that's right. I think it was an endpoint of convenience more than anything else. When you know, a person has a CT scan to diagnose pulmonary embolism, you've got an RV-LV ratio on that CT scan, um, and it it, it limits how much other you know. These are all these are uh, all either retrospective case report series or perspective series, and it's just an easy uh, it's an easy endpoint to use. I'll add too that I'm not sure that there are any really good data linking RV to LV ratio with any long term outcomes. I'm not sure it prognosticates anything other than the RV LV ratio at that point. Exactly, that's exactly right. And I think your point's well taken that. Looking at some of those other endpoints, including mortality, um, certainly would require a larger trial than a longer-term trial. So uh, I think you're right. Um, I think it gives you some important information. We clearly do care about RV function and restoration of, <clears throat> of cardiac function as best we can, but, uh, um, but it'd be nice to have uh, you know, some of the longer-term data as well. So, Dave, it appears that, uh, as you mentioned, that, that catheter-directed lysis results in in a quicker reduction of pulmonary artery pressures and improvement in RV function compared to anticoagulation in, in these groups. And you alluded to a little bit, but I'd hope you and Scott can just uh, get into it a little more detail. And that is the longer term impact on clinical parameters like 
mortality, uh, like functional status, like recurrence. Uh, can you comment a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So certainly there haven't been any sort of large randomized control trials with ongoing follow-up to see if there's a, a big meaningful impact on mortality. In the only randomized control trial, the Ultima, they did look at mortality, but there was no deaths in either group. And doesn't doesn't help us uh, too much in sort of answering that question. Uh, the data seems to show that the rates of mortality is definitely low with the catheter-directed thrombolysis. It was 2.7 to 4% from everything I saw, but those are almost exactly the same rates that were seen in the control arms of the thrombolysis trials. The anticoagulation uh, for submassive PD seems to have pretty equivalent outcomes. In terms of functional status, you know, there uh, is some data uh, about going forward that People have high PA pressures uh, when they have their PE can have ongoing symptoms, but there doesn't seem to be any data that catheter-directed thrombolysis is decreasing uh, the presence of those symptoms down the road. Scott, any comment on your end? No, I think that sums it up perfectly. I think that the long-term significance of a rapid decrement in pulmonary artery pressures or in RV function, we don't know. But it does not seem, based on the data we have now, to improve mortality or improve long-term uh, pulmonary vascular disease outcomes. Dave, how about, how about um, chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension? That's obviously one of the things that we worry about. So can you comment on the incidence of CTEF after a submassive PE uh, and ultimately, does do you think catheter-directed thrombolysis impacts the development of CTEF? Yeah, there have been a number of sort of registries to see how common CTEP is after an acute PE. It looks to be about 3 to 4% in general with all comers. I think sort of the best data on this uh, comes from uh, the PETHOS trial, which is sort of the largest trial of thrombolysis versus anticoagulation for submassive PE. They just pu published a more long-term follow-up study, uh, and the rate with anticoagulation alone was 3.2%. So I think that's a good number to sort of go on. That was at three years. Um, the long-term studies for CDT to lead to CTEP, uh, decreased CTEP, are really lacking. doesn't really seem to show anything. But I will say in that PETHOS trial, the thrombolysis group really didn't have any decreased rates. Um, and so that sort of drives to the point that maybe decreasing the PA pressures and the RV strain quickly, while uh, the numbers get better faster, it doesn't lead to a long-term reduction in the development of this. And I think that could have to do with sort of the etiology of CTEP. I think it maybe less has to do with one large uh, clot event as opposed to recurrent clot events and um, proliferative changes in the pulmonary vasculature that uh, some people get and may not just be related to the pressures at the, incidental, at the uh, initial event. Interesting. So that it, it probably doesn't affect or doesn't impact the endothelium and the, and the damage to the endothelium that may result in CTEF later on. So it, I think that's a, that's an excellent point. Um, so one of the things I was thinking about, do you think, and this is, I'm sure this is really hypothesis at this point, but do you think that catheter-directed lysis may have a role in patients with PE that are related to anti-cardiolipin and antibody syndrome? Clearly, the endocardial life and antibody syndrome is a risk factor for CTEF. Any, any, any thoughts about that from either one of you? I don't know the, uh, that much about yeah. the specifics of anticardiolipin-related uh, CTEP. I will say that based on what I kind of was saying before is I think the etiology is more about recurrent clots, who is getting the sort of proliferative changes in the endothelial uh, vasculature. And so I, I don't imagine that it would have a huge impact on these specific group of patients um, for just decreasing the pressures after an acute event. But I can't say that I have a lot of expertise in that. I don't know, uh, Scott, if you have any other more experience with it. No, I don't. And I don't think there are any really good data to, 
to guide us other than what you said, that it seems like it's recurrent embolic events, which are really the, the prime driver of chronic thromboembolic disease. And giving lytics, uh, whether that's going to help in the app, you know, or whether it's just needing long-term anticoagulation is going to make a difference. I don't know. I, I would, but I would be, I would be skeptical that the thrombolytic treatment is going to affect even in that patient population long-term outcomes. I agree. I agree. So one of the things that I was, uh, I was interested in when I read the review is this issue of ultrasound assisted thrombolysis. You, you guys mentioned it a little bit before. So, so what is that exactly? And, and were there any advantages to this specific technique as opposed to just uh, the installation of thrombolysis in an area clot? Yeah, so uh, ultrasound-assisted thrombolysis is sort of an adjunct to catheter-directed thrombolysis, like Dr. Stevens was saying before. It's uh, ultrasound waves usually sort of pulsed uh, and low energy that come from the end of the catheter, and they're meant to sort of enhance the fibrinolysis effect. Uh, in Some in vitro studies show that it even the ultrasound alone can lead to some fibrinolysis, and it can actually be synergistic with thrombolysis. But again, that is all uh, sort of in vitro. It's sort of thought to maybe like massage uh, the thrombolysis into the clot and help disperse it a little bit more. Uh, I'll say that the the studies that have been done for DVT for this, there's been sort of a number of studies with the ultrasound assisted compared to catheter-directed thrombolysis, and there doesn't seem to be uh, a large advantage to adding the ultrasound to it. So I don't think that there's any great data that it's uh, in increasing the clot reduction compared to just sort of conventional techniques. In fact, if anything, there might be a disadvantage of ultrasound-assisted uh, thrombolysis in that it seems to, without conferring any benefits, it seems to increase ICU stay, uh, probably because the patients end up dwelling longer with the catheters in place. Do you uh, do, do either of your institutions use cath I mean, uh, ultrasound-assisted thrombolysis as far as you know? Yeah, they definitely use it up here. I've definitely seen a couple patients with it. Yeah, we have gotten away from it at Johns Hopkins. We tend to um, we tend to only do when we do catheter-directed therapy. Uh, have only done the infusion rather than using the ultrasound-assisted catheter. Interesting, terrific. So I just wanted to move into the area about the safety. Uh, obviously, that's an important consideration. And Dave, again, you you mentioned a little bit early on. So what are the main complications and the safety issues with with catheter-directed lysis. And then, again, I think it'd be helpful for the clinician just to compare that with systemic thrombolysis, understanding that obviously they'd be used in different populations or uh, just anticoagulation. Where are we on that, uh, on that uh, front? The main consideration with all three of them, you sort of alluded to, is just major bleeding events. Um, Catheter-directed thrombolysis also has some procedural complications that can happen. In most of the studies, those are pretty rare, I think, because they're usually done at centers of sort of high volume and a lot of expertise. Um, but major bleeding events is, is sort of the main concern, and intracranial hemorrhages uh, specifically are um, sort of a large uh, one that we worry about. Uh, in all of these trials, the intracranial hemorrhage rate is vanishingly low. I think there was only a, uh, one or two that I saw reported. So it does seem to be lower than what was reported with systemic thrombolysis, where that was uh, sort of one of the large concerns that came up. Um, there were still a number of major bleeding events. Uh, they were uh, more common in Seattle, too, a little rarer in the other ones, but still something to sort of keep an eye on. And then it does seem like there's just more minor bleeding in general than with anticoagulation alone. Again, not directly compared, but it's sort of just the sense that you get from reading the data. And I think the, addition, the additional point on that is that, and we've seen this again and again in studies in critical care medicine and really in any interventional study that... Uh, 
the real world incidents of complications tend to be higher than what are reported in early case series or even early very well controlled trials because you take away a lot of the comorbidities in those controlled trials that might contribute to higher complication rates. That's a, that's an excellent point, Scott. And I'm going to I'm going to come back to that point about patient selection and ask for your and Dave's uh, opinions and experience with this. But um, in general, one of the things that's happened certainly over the over the last 10 or 15 years is that the, the treatment of PE and the approach to treatment of PE used to be in the hands of, you know, a single physician, or at least early on, right? The attending in the ICU, the attending on, on a floor, and that certainly changed. So how do you guys at your institutions approach the treatment of pulmonary embolism? Is there a PE response team or a so-called PERT at your places? So so how is the decision-making in, in patients like this with submassive pulmonary embolism? How is that handled uh, at your places? Scott, I think you're actually on the PE attack team at Hopkins, and I've only ever just called one, so maybe I'll let you take that one. Yeah, we do have a team, and I have increasingly personally struggled with what the role of that team should be because I, I think you're right, Greg. There, I think you lose, you lose something. There is something to be said for multidisciplinary input, but you do lose something when there's a single person making the decision, you know, integrating all the data and making a decision. Now, that requires that single person be familiar with all of the treatment modalities, benefits, costs, all those sort of things. But I, I do worry a little bit about the, the medicine by committee that the, the, the PE response teams entail. So how does – so tell me – give me a typical scenario. So there's a patient on a medical floor, um, clinical suspicion for pulmonary embolism, diagnosis confirmed, echo or other parameters suggest – you know, RV dysfunction in the absence of frank hypotension and shock. So, so what does what is the, what does the house officer do? What does the attending do? What does the the guy in the community practice do under those circumstances? How does that how does that pert work? Right. So generally, it's the house officer then who will initiate uh, the activation of the team. And like many centers, we have a, a centralized call center, paging operator, whatever you want to call it. Um, that service is called and then is able to get on a conference call a representative from pulmonary medicine, interventional radiology, and cardiac surgery. The, the patient is then presented by the house officer, the referring physician, and then based on the information given, determination made whether A, the person is a candidate for any possible intervention other than anticoagulation. Is it technically feasible to do a catheter-directed therapy um, or, uh, or a surgical embolectomy? And then whether or not that is uh, recommended or required. And I think that the, I think that the first part is easy. The feasibility part is easy, right? Is it a big central clot? Is it more of a uh, multi-lobar subsegmental clot that probably wouldn't be very accessible either surgically or amenable to catheter-directed therapy? That's the easy decision. The tougher decision is then whether you should proceed with any therapy or whether you should just anticoagulate the patient. Exactly. Um, and ultimately, it's obviously the, the patient, obviously, in, in the patient's uh, understanding of the process is ultimately uh, the most important factor. But this is so this is information that then is filtered back to the attending. Um, and so that decision making, I presume, is still in the hands of the patient with now an attending who's armed with a recommendation by several experts. Is that a good summary? It, it is, although that I think that's that is. You know, that is the potentially problematic thing to make sure that the most experienced person is making the integrated decision. 
right? And it's not just it's not just the house officer listening to three people who have a lot of knowledge about their own particular field, but maybe can't integrate it into the particular patient situation. Exactly. Thanks. So, um, is there a role for catheter-directed lysis in massive PE? Maybe in those patients who are at higher risk for bleeding with with uh, with systemic thrombolysis. What do you guys think? I th- I think that for massive PE there there seems to be. I mean, with massive PE, the mortality rate is so high. Um, uh, that you sort of have to act and do something there. Uh, and it does seem like catheter-directed thrombolysis is safer than systemic thrombolysis. You know, again, hasn't been compared head-to-head, but at least the general feel is that there's a little bit less bleeding complications. And it's probably less invasive than sort of a big surgical thrombectomy. So, you know, I think still having it as an option for patients who are unstable is definitely appropriate. And um, there are certainly patients who are going the wrong direction uh, or kind of progressing to massive PE where it's something I would think about turning to. So I would, I would, I I have a little bit of a different perspective on that, which is that a lot of time I, you know, I get nervous sending a patient who's hemodynamically stable off the floor to the interventional radiology suite or to the cath lab suite, depending on the level of monitoring and hemodynamic support that's available there. Um, And that's the, I think that that's a critical component to it. It's not just the safety of the procedure, but it's the safety of the logistics surrounding the procedure. If it's safe to get the person there and there's a backup plan in place in the location where the procedure is being done for hemodynamic support, whether that's ECMO or, uh, or just increasing someone who's actually there to titrate pressors, then I think that's, that's one thing, but you've got to make sure that's in place. If you're going to send a patient with a massive PE off the floor to for a prolonged procedure. Point well taken, Scott. Point well taken. Dave, comment? Yeah, I just totally agree with that. Certainly, it has to be in the right environment where the patient still um, is even stable enough to get to that, you know, and, and you don't have to do something else more extreme, namely sort of thinking about ECMO. Um, but if they're able to get there and you have the right facility and the right care in that place, then still could be an option to consider. Perfect. So based on what you guys learned from your view about submassive PE and then the role of, uh, of CDT, based on what you've learned and what you've published in your review, give me a sense for what clinical scenario would you turn to catheter-directed thrombolysis? And we'll start with you, Dave, and then I'd like to hear Scott's thoughts as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think we were kind of getting to it now. You know, a patient who comes in with um, a large PE, even even a submassive PE, and then you're sort of just watching. They're sort of well monitored and well supported in the ICU and on anticoagulation. Uh, if they were to continue to progress, become hemodynamically unstable, requiring increasing amounts of pressors or um, having signs of RV failure, and they're still safe enough to get down to uh, the interventional cardiology or interventional radiology suite to have this, then I think it's an option where I would think about it. Um, I certainly don't think it's something for patients, all comers with submassive PE, because I think most of those will do pretty well with some watchful waiting and, and just uh, anticoagulation and abundance of care. Um, and then for massive PE, I think, again, the multidisciplinary team to sort of discuss it and like Dr. Stevens was saying, to have sort of a quarterback who's uh, uh, assessing all the information to make the final decision. I think having it in the arsenal there is still a helpful option. Scott, what do you think? So I think this is uh, uh, this is one of the situations where almost the more the more that I have learned about this, 
uh, in the process of writing this paper and then just gaining some experience with this patient population, the less I am certain of what to do with the patients. <laughs> I'm not sure what the role for catheter-directed therapy is in the hemodynamically stable patient who has RV dysfunction. I'm not sure that there, that there are data to support routinely putting a catheter in these patients compared to just systemic anticoagulation. And then in the unstable patient, I'm less sure of it too, just because of all of the logistics involved in transporting a patient to get the procedure done. So I, I paradoxically, I've become much more uncertain as to what the role of catheter-directed therapy is. That's an interesting point. And, and, you know, it's interesting when you do this kind of a review, sometimes you learn things that, uh, that go against what you thought beforehand. So, um, you know, I think uh, the, the, one of the messages that I've heard from you, and, and you guys are going to tell me the other things that you learned, but certainly uh, one of the things is that CDT may not be something you have to turn to early on. It may be a potential option that becomes available depending on the patient's clinical course. Is that a fair, uh, is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think it's not something, it's something that you shouldn't turn to early on. Uh, I don't think that there's uh, good data to, for patients who are, again, stable with submassive PE. I don't think it's something to reach for right away. Maybe something later on, like you were uh, suggesting, but I don't think uh, an early on presentation is a great option. Interesting. So, um, Dave, we'll start, um, or I'd like to turn to you. So this is, I think, an important part of the podcast. Give us the, the main take-home message and the main take-home points for clinicians about catheter-directed thrombolysis and the treatment of, of submassive PE. So I'd really like to give our listeners you know, a checklist. This is what the review, a, a really systematic and very organized and very high-quality review of the literature taught us. So give us several of those points. Uh, for the people listening? I think uh, the big take-home points are that, you know, catheter-directed thrombolysis definitely quickly decreases pulmonary artery pressures and reduces RV strain. Um, but whether or not that RV strain reduction is sustained over time, uh, there hasn't been any real evidence that shows that. It seems like that will reverse on its own over time with anticoagulation. Uh, it's a low mortality rate for patients with submassive PE treated with it, with CDT, but it's very similar to the mortality rate for those treated just with anticoagulation alone. And there's not a good randomized control trial that to say that it's better than just treating them with anticoagulation. Um, there, it, it in general is probably a bit safer than systemic thrombolysis, you know, less intracranial hemorrhages, um, maybe less major bleeding, although haven't been directly compared, but still seems to be some more bleeding than just with anticoagulation alone, certainly more minor bleeding events and probably uh, some more major bleeding events as well. And then there is not any evidence that we sort of saw that ultrasound assisted thrombolysis is better than just standard catheter directed thrombolysis, and it may uh, cost a bit more and may have the patient in the hospital a bit longer. Uh, and there's no evidence that uh, CDT reduces the subsequent rate of CTEP or the subsequent rate of uh, symptoms, you know, at six months or a year, sort of the long-term outcomes. Uh, so it shouldn't really be used to that end. Perfect. Scott, anything to add? No, I think that sums it up well. I think that there, are, there just aren't enough data to really just guide us as to how to use this technology. And it really needs to be studied in well-done randomized trials. So are there any prospective randomized trials of, uh, of catheter-directed therapy being planned at this point? 
I did a quick search, just sort of looking for some clinical trials. Uh, I saw, uh, I think, one at Emory and one at Pittsburgh, and that was just comparing uh, catheter-directed thrombolysis versus ultrasound-assisted thrombolysis. But I didn't see any just comparing uh, CDT or ultrasound-assisted to anticoagulation alone. And that's really, the, I think that's the key study that needs to be done, is comparing this to simple anticoagulation and seeing whether there really is any long-term benefit to it. So maybe the two of you should collaborate on a, on this kind of a trial since you're now yeah. <laughs> since you've now developed significant expertise in this area. So so uh, you'd never know. Um, Dave Scott, any any last thoughts or any other points that uh, that you'd like to make for our listeners? Yeah, I think we summed most of it up. I think one of the uh, only other things to think about is just sort of uh, advancing our prognostication tools in submassive P. Right now, we really can't tell who's going to come in and decompensate and who's going to come in and just do fine. And uh, sort of honing in on that might help with all of these decisions. Perfect, Scott. I couldn't agree with that. I couldn't agree more. That sums it up perfectly. Okay. Well. Scott and Dave, really, uh, this was a, a wonderful session. Uh, I'd like to thank both of you for joining our podcast today. And for our listeners, I hope you found today's discussion about the role of catheter-directed therapy in the treatment of submassive pulmonary embolism as really as informative as and enlightening as I have. So until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS, uh, and thank you for joining in. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs>